The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is God's word. And I will simply add, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So the, uh, it can seem like words like this are such ancient words that they may no longer be relevant, um, and indeed times have changed, but not everything has changed. And so as we kind of enter into this series, we're thinking about, okay, we, uh, we're reading a book by a disciple of Jesus named Mark who actually would have seen and encountered Jesus, but he's inviting people who had not seen and encountered Jesus to see him through what he's written. And we're going to open up ourselves to that and listen to that throughout the year. My job right now is to kind of frame this this book for you. So there's going to be kind of the informational side, and then I hope what uh, is kind of the invitational side of this to come. But this book is, is named Mark, though Mark's name is not on it, if you were to look at any kind of ancient text, because it's a tradition that he wrote the book rather than uh, the, a book titled Mark. Um, it had no name on it. But the early church believed that a writer named Mark wrote this book. And we think that was John Mark, who shows up in the lives of Paul and Barnabas and was even likely the, uh, the child in the home where the Last Supper occurred. So we, we think that that's who wrote this, and we have pretty good evidence to say that that's who it was. And if, it, if that is who it was, that's also the person who ended up working with the Apostle Peter in the city of Rome later in Peter's life, and, and would have recorded some of Peter's stories. So the Apostle Peter had said in his letters that he planned to make a record of everything that he had seen, and we think that is what Mark helped him do. So the, the titling of this book maybe even could be Peter, um, or it could be something like that, but Mark is the person delivering the stories. So some, some reasons we think that might be the case. First of all, this book is the most negative about Peter. If you're to look at all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is the one that makes Peter look the worst. And that's uncommon in, uh, in ancient literature. If you're kind of telling a hero story or telling a story about somebody that you should listen to, you normally wouldn't say, and by the way, they made a lot of mistakes. Um, you would normally kind of elevate them in your view. But because Peter is elevating Jesus and talking about the mercy of Jesus and how Jesus died for people's sins, it's reasonable to think that he would show that he had to receive that. And so that's why we think the book is so negative about Peter. So it's, uh, it's negative about Peter. It doesn't name Mark at, at the core because it's not about either one of them. It is indeed about Jesus. And it's a framed as a gospel, and gospel is good news. It's good news to the whole world about Jesus. So this book is written from Rome. I always, every once in a while, I like to remind us that uh, the, the Bible is, is talking about places that existed and exist now. So every once in a while, I just like to look at a Google map for a second and remind us that, ah, indeed, there up in Italy is, is Rome. And you can see that down at the bottom right is Jerusalem. And you've got Alexandria, where there was a, a big movement of Christians, and, and Rome's pretty far away. This is actually the, the 
epicenter of the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire spread all throughout this area. But for this to be written from Rome, this is, this is quite some distance from where the disciples would have encountered Jesus. So that means they're in a culture that would not have seen Jesus. Jesus did not go to Rome, right? So just to think about that, that's, that's where it was. That's where it's happening. Of course, you can go to Rome today and visit the places that Peter and Mark would have seen. The uh, timing of this book is probably about 30 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, somewhere between 60 and 70 AD. Um, and Peter would eventually be crucified, we find out, in Rome. So just to frame it for a bit, um, this is written by people who knew Jesus. Peter was a disciple of Jesus. John Mark would have been a child in the area who knew who Jesus was, but was too young to be a disciple. And uh, so it's different from our context in that regard, right? None of us uh, are old, are that old. We might feel old, but we're not that old. Um, but there are ways in which it's the same, in which Rome did not actually have these stories of, hey, Jesus walked among us. They're a, they're a different setting, different culture, and this news is being spread to them similar to the way it is here in Tucson. Um, Rome was the center of the most powerful empire of its time. Uh, it was a city of several million people, which surprised me. I, I actually did not realize how large it was until I looked it up. So three times the size of Tucson is the city of Rome as far as population density. Um, it had slums, sanitation issues, wealth, power, political upheaval, arts, athletic stadiums. This is like the, the modern city is being built. And of course, it still exists today, right? And believers in Jesus, let alone the God of the Bible, were absolutely the minority in Rome. This is, uh, they were a minority within a minority. So if you, were, if you were Jewish, you were most likely to hear what had happened with Jesus first. But even among Jews, the Christians would have been the minority. So Jews were minorities in the Roman Empire, and Christians were the minority within a min minority. Jesus is no longer with them. In fact, the culture in, in the city of Rome would have considered Jesus quite obsolete. He might be somebody that they'd heard had existed, but he had, in fact, um, been killed. And so they would have viewed him as a revolutionary who had came and gone. The Christians among them were telling a story of his resurrection from the dead, which they would have considered quite ridiculous, by and large. And in this, in this situation, Peter has traveled to Rome to invest in starting the church in this area. And Mark is recording his stories and trying to tell people, this Jesus um, who you've heard about, who we're telling you about, not only do we believe he rose from the dead, but, but his spirit can enter into your life and you can spiritually experience him and know him and follow him and your life can become framed around who he is as opposed to everything uh, your culture is telling you to frame it around. That's a hard ask. It really is a hard ask. Now, how do we know that Mark wants us to encounter Jesus? That's kind of the, the idea behind this sermon series. Why, why is that so? It's partially about how he writes his book. It's punchy little stories, sometimes called pericopes. And there's some debate among scholars as to what literature type um, the book of Mark is. We call it a gospel, and that became a type of literature. But at the time he wrote this, that idea was, was new. Gospel was just news shared by a herald. There wasn't a genre of literature around it. 
So scholars today look at this and they go, it's kind of like an ancient biography, except it's a little bit different. It's almost theatrical in that it has these little punchy stories that, that like teach something, almost like a theatrical piece of writing from their day. Um, the, the majority of scholars land on the biography idea. It's an ancient biography, but they'll say it draws elements from ancient theater. And that's especially because the passion narrative or, or the narrative in which Jesus dies uh, is about a third of the book and it draws out like a play. And it really is quite unique. Uh, and then the small vignettes can be read separately, these little stories. Now, in ancient biography, um, if, if you read a biography today, you went and you know, picked up a biography of one of the last presidents or something like that, you would expect... Uh, to read something that was like a deep exploration. They would be getting into, oh, here's their childhood and here's their motivations and here's some hard things that happened and here's some ways that their character was formed. That is not how an ancient biography worked. Um, an ancient biography would usually be something to the effect of it's going to tell you stories often without a lot of backstory that exhibit ways in which you can emulate what this person has done, like a go and do likewise type of story. So here's something that this person did that's very admirable. And so you could pattern your life and go do something admirable as well. And in a way, that is very much what Mark does with Jesus. It's these little stories where you could take a principle and go, what would it look like to apply that to my life? What would it look like to believe that? What would it look like to hear somebody say that to me and then respond out of it? Which is why we think it's a good book to tell you what it would be like to encounter Jesus. It's written that way. So today I want to consider the way it begins and what that means. And it begins, I think, with some, some bold moment, a bold claim, a bold voice, a bold call. Uh, just It's a very dramatic opening, if you will. And it, the bold claim at the very beginning of it is this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it says, the Son of God. Now, there's a, there's a little debate out there as to whether the Son of God was there originally. My appraisal of it is it looks like it was, and if anything, some older manuscripts uh, missed it. So it seems like it was an original phrase that he, he opens by saying, the Son of God. This is who Jesus is, the Son of God. So to, to be the gospel, a gospel, like I said, is something that a herald would share. It's like headline news for us. This is headline news, he's saying, big news. Uh, Jesus is the Christ. We've talked about that word with the kids up front a little bit, not Jesus's last name. It's to say he's the anointed and coming king. So the gospel of the anointed and coming king, frontline news. Um, and then it says the son of God. So this is just three big statements uh, right on the front end. Mark, as I mentioned, is likely writing in Rome, uh, and there were no doubt Jews in this, part, in this part of the empire. That's where Christians tended to start, is with Jewish people, because they had all the background information to understand who Jesus was. Um, but these three little words would have shocked and challenged Romans and Jews. To a modern person growing up in the shadow of Christendom, which is you, which is all of us, what I mean by that is, is if you grow up in Western culture, you were influenced by a period of time in which Christianity was dominant. It was a world religion and it shaped the culture around us. But to people like us, um, who, who we live in the shadow of that, but have also been formed by kind of scientific rationalism, you could say, we hear son of God and here's where our head goes. We want a technical definition of that. We go, 
what would it look like for God to have a child? How could a human also be God? We ask those kind of questions. And those aren't bad questions, but they are not the questions that an ancient Jew or Roman would have thought of first. They would have thought of different questions. And we are not the type of people Mark was writing to, and you have to keep that in mind. If you were Jewish and formed by the memorization of the ancient Hebrew scriptures, you would have been used to the phrase son of God, actually. It was in your text, but here is where it usually was. It was in relationship to your nation's identity. So Israel was called the son of God. When they would have heard it, that's where their heads would have gone. So here's a core story for Jewish people in the Exodus. So um, here, the Lord God is saying this to Moses uh, in the midst of the Exodus moment where the plagues are about to come up upon Egypt. He says, when you go back to Egypt, Moses, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, and I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, ancient Jews knew this story in and out. So when they hear the son of God, that's where their head goes. They're thinking of their national identity. Um, it was, a, it was a phrase that described the people that God had chosen to love, prosper, deliver, and reveal himself to. Now, they also knew that to be the son of God, to be that, that nation that was considered the son of God, they had certain responsibilities. It was like being the heir of a family fortune, right? To, to be an heir of a family fortune was to, to honor the father who had bestowed this upon them, to obey the desires of the one who had given them that fortune and to emulate them in order to honor this great gift that had been kind of bestowed upon you. Um, and they knew in their story that they had failed to do this in many ways, that in many ways they did not um, live up to what God had given to them in this story of the Exodus. So in light of this, what would it mean for Jesus to be the son of God, for them to hear that? You have to think about that a little bit. Like, what would they think? And I, I think one piece of that at least would be that it very well meant that he was standing in Israel's place. It's where Israel had had that relationship of being the son of God, the chosen one who had been given this great inheritance, who had been entrusted with it, that Jesus was now standing in their place, Okay. But Mark wasn't just writing to Jews. He's writing to and among Romans, and they were writing to curious people in the Roman Empire. And it turns out this idea of the Son of God is kind of a bridge concept that would have meant one thing in one culture and one thing in another and was intriguing to both. In the Roman Empire, what would it have meant? Um, they would have been agitated and intrigued by this idea because for them, the idea of son of God signaled empirical rule. Their leaders were deified and their heirs, their children were called sons of God in the eternal city of Rome. This is honestly what, what is out there in the, in the like textual data and you can find it in the archeological data that the, the sons of the Caesars were called sons of God. Um, either way, 
Whether you're talking to Jewish people or you're talking to Roman people, the idea that a young Jewish teacher who'd been arrested, tried, convicted, and crucified, um, who, you know, whose followers first scattered, uh, uh, ran away from him, and then claimed the impossible that he'd risen from the dead and that he was the son of God, either community would struggle to believe that this is possible or this is true or this makes sense. It is a bold claim to say this. I was trying to think what that might look like for us. And, I, and I, I wonder, because none of us are shaped by those kind of cultures. We don't view our rulers as sons of God. We don't view our people as the son or the heir of God. We don't. I was thinking about, about it this way. Who, who's the most formative community in your life? Just think about that for a second. In your life, perhaps um, it's your family. Perhaps it's a friend group. Perhaps it is a church or something like that. Perhaps it's like an online community that you identify with more than anybody else. What would it mean for me to say to you that an ancient Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth, is actually the replacement and the better version of that? That, that Jesus means to stand in that place and take that place of preeminence in your life as being the most formative community for you. What would that mean? And would that challenge you a little bit? Um, for him to say, I, I am your true family. I am your true friend. I can form you better than anybody else, right? Or what's the most, in your mind, the most powerful entity in the world? Like the one that holds the, the power that could actually change your life. Is it the government that you sit under? Is it the media? Is it the wealthy and the privileged? And what would it mean for Jesus to take the place of that in your appraisal? To be the president of your life, the main influencer of your life, the benefactor that could lead you into what's good and right and true. Like, what would it look like to view Jesus and place him in that place? That might get at what it would mean to adopt the idea that Jesus is the son of God. Not just that technical, what's it like to have God as a son, but what would it be like to have Jesus take that preeminent place and be at the core of your identity and your hope? So Mark isn't subtle. To bring out this idea of son of God is, is a big idea that would challenge everybody who read what he was about to write. And then we're introduced to what I'm calling a bold voice. We'll talk about this, this character more next week. But it's, uh, it says, as is written in Isaiah the prophet. Um, and, and by the way, that there's if you dig into this book a little bit, you'll quickly learn that this is a conglomerate of several prophets' words that were often put together in the ancient literature. Jews often kind of memorized this little conglomerate piece, and Isaiah was one of the writers of it. But it says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And more on this is coming next week, but this is speaking of John the Baptist. Um, and John is honestly the more revolutionary figure in the Jesus story. He's spending time in the wilderness. Uh, he's rejecting the lifestyles of those all around him. He is not doing what the Jewish people do. He's not what, doing what the Roman Empire does. Um, he is, uh, he's like a sage coming out of the wilderness. And he calls people uh, to repent. 
and he is bold and he gets a following. He's got people following him, him who are saying, this guy's saying what nobody else will say. And it eventually gets him imprisoned and killed. But a couple of notable things about him seem relevant here. Um, number one, he is just a man. As bold as he is, he's just a man, but God uses him in an incredible way to set the table for people to see Jesus. Mark, who's sharing the story, is just a person too, right? Now, one thing that I want to draw out here is when you consider encountering God, it's almost always going to involve people and imperfect people. There's like no way around it. Um, this is part of what it means to encounter the God who made us all is that we encounter him through one another. God is not the God just of Ray or Roland or Timet, right? Or Sarah. God is the God of us all. He is speaking to us all. He is working in the lives of all of us, not just one of us. It's not little solo journeys with God. It's a joint journey, a communal journey with God. And so we're going to experience God through and amidst the lives of imperfect people. Part of why um, we're encouraging you to share some of your stories as part of this series is because we believe that our stories are not just for ourselves, they're for one another. Like sometimes you will, en you will encounter God in a way that I have never experienced and it will align with the scriptures. It will magnify who God is to me because I can't see it that way. I've never seen it that way. But you have and we need one another's stories because the story of God is for the body of people. So John the Baptist is a human that God called into a unique role. He's set apart to be the voice, the, the bold voice that calls people to look out for God's anointed son who is going to follow him. Um, but remember what I said about the Jews and the Romans. Each one of them had their ideas of what the anointed one was going to do. And John, as called as he was by God, as profoundly called by God as he was, shows up later in the Gospels as one of the first skeptics of Jesus. So if you read Luke 7 or Matthew 11, John is in prison and he's hearing reports about Jesus. And there's, you know, it seems that he's a little thrown off and he sends out uh, one, a messenger to, to reach out to Jesus and the disciples and ask this question, are you the one that we were looking for or should we look for someone else? And you think about why, why is that? Well, I mean, John here has, he's prepared the way, he's poured his whole life into this, and now he's in prison. And so his journey of following Jesus is not going well. He's not feeling encouraged. He's not feeling saved. He's not feeling as if this is working. And so he's looking out at this, this realization that after years of following Jesus, it's not working. And he goes, so are you really the one I was waiting for? Or is there somebody else? On top of that, his assumptions about what Jesus was going to do weren't panning out. When Jesus had come into the world, when he baptized him, he expected some things. We don't know exactly what those were, but he probably expected more success for more things to get ironed out and fixed. 
And as he looked at the reality of things that Jesus had gathered this huge following that they'd all you know, gathered on the, on the, at the Sermon on the Mount and heard all of his words. And then now they were starting to leave him because he was starting to say things they didn't like and his following is shrinking, right? And John is looking at this and going, that doesn't seem right. You're supposed to get more and more influential, more and more powerful. You're not supposed to have a burst and then it all shrinks. Are we supposed to be looking for somebody else? Now, Jesus delivered the message back through one of his disciples and said, tell him what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Now, why would, why would he say that? Why would John need to be encouraged not to be offended? Well, again, John wasn't looking for lame people to walk, good news to be preached to the poor. He was looking for power and victory and progress. And Jesus said, and he needed to encourage him, just because I'm not coming the way you expected or the way you wanted, blessed are you who are not offended by me. See, John, who was called by God, becomes one of the first skeptics. And I can relate to that. Uh, I, I'll bet a lot of you can too. I mean, I, I remember when I first sensed like God was really moving in on my life um, and I decided to trust him and follow him, there was a list of things I expected to improve in certain ways. And, it, and when I look back on my life, that hasn't all panned out the way I expected it to, right? It's, and it can be kind of offensive. Jesus, I, I'm trying to trust in you and follow you, and I'm really hoping for these outcomes. Um, should I be looking for someone else? Right? John the Baptist uh, comes with a bold voice, but a very human voice. And I love, it's true, it's true to life, and it's therefore very encouraging that the people who encounter Jesus in the Bible are just as human as we are. That they look out at him and they, they have their doubts and their struggles. It doesn't always make sense to them. And that's how it feels for us. But remember how God works through it all. Um, even Jesus' disciples deliver back to John what they saw. Can, we actually know that some of Jesus' disciples were formerly John's disciples. And so the one who is leading them is now in prison and he has his doubts and they get to return to him and encourage him and say, hey, we weren't expecting to see this either but we're seeing incredible things. And they get to minister back to the one who once led them. Uh, Cruz had a great little line when we were planning the, the service that I thought was so good. He said, sometimes we experience God by proclaiming him to others. And I, I think that's very true. We're, we're human. We have our doubts and we get offended. But in a community, some will see God's power and goodness in, in what Jesus is doing in ways that we can't see. Just like what happened here with John. Those disciples, they, maybe they didn't understand it, but they did see Jesus doing these incredible things. And they're be able to report back to John and encourage him. Sometimes we experience Jesus when we get to go and encourage someone else's heart and say, look, I, I'm seeing something. I want to tell you about it. Maybe this will encourage you. And mission, this is, this is why we exist. We, uh, we've kind of created this little approach of being an outpost of the church. And what we want to do is proclaim Jesus to those inside the church and outside the church. 
That, that means like to be kind of on that edge, this red dot here represents the church. And to be on the edge of it is to say, when people are dealing with, with discouragement or they're feeling skeptical, they're kind of where John the Baptist was, where they're saying, is this right? Should I be looking for somebody else? We want to be like the disciples that are saying to them, hey, look at what we're seeing. Look at, look at what God is doing in our hearts. And we also want to be representing Jesus out to people like the people of Rome who are, who are saying, this is foreign to us. We've never heard of this in our lives. And to say, hey, here's, here's who Jesus is. Here's what we're seeing. Um, and we also need the input of people who are outside who can kind of challenge our assumptions. And we need the input of people who are inside who can build us up. We want to build those vital relationships moving in both directions. Anyway, a bold claim, uh, a bold voice is coming. And then uh, Mark points us to this ancient but ever operative uh, bold call, which comes in the last little part of this introduction that says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This is coming from Isaiah 43 to 4, which says, a voice cries. This is very familiar around Christmas time, and we're still close. We still have Christmas lights up, so it feels right. Um, a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. So this, this bold call is being drawn out of a piece of ancient literature some 700 years uh, old at the time. And John the Baptist had shared it with people. He'd said, uh, this is my mission um, to prepare the way. And then Mark is projecting it forward to people who've never heard about Jesus in the Roman Empire. And he's saying, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight uh, to those who were not eyewitnesses of Jesus like Peter. He's, he's saying this out to people who've never heard of Jesus. And what this means, um, if it applies to Jesus, is that you can prepare the way of the Lord without him being physically present in your life. It means that anyone, anytime, anywhere can encounter God and Jesus, but there's a preparation to do for that encounter. Now, at first glance for us, this doesn't sound like that bold of a claim. It's, oh, you know, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. It sort of sounds like a quote from a trail building magazine or something, right? Um, or worse, like for desert people, you're like, what are you going to like rip out all the good shrubs? And why are we doing that? Like, this doesn't make any sense. We're demolishing things. But these are moments where the scriptures and any ancient text honestly just gets rich when you dig in a little and seek what's behind it. And to some degree, this text in Isaiah is a hyperbolic uh, text, which is just to say it's, it's taking something and kind of magnifying it, making it sound almost like ridiculous to get the point across. But it's referring to an ancient custom of preparing for a royal visit, usually a king to visit your town. And it, it's applied, it's spoken hyperbolically, like how are you going to take down mountains and bring up plains? Like how does that work? Um, so that's hyperbolic, but it's applied to the state of our hearts. And it's saying, apply this spiritually. So when a king or royal official would visit a town in Jesus's day, this is before paving uh, was invented and you want to smooth a road out so that when the king came to your town, so you've got these like rocky stone roads in the ancient empire, and you want the king to come to your town and to think 
pleasantly of his experience of coming to your, of your town. You want him to be impressed. You want, when his carriage comes down your road, you want it to be more smooth than most of the other roads. Uh, when he comes down your road, you don't want branches to be hitting him in the face. You want him to just be impressed and say, wow, it was clean, it was smooth. This town that is under my rule is beautiful and well cared for. You want him to be impressed. And your commitment to that is going to ex exhibit your receptivity to his rule and to who he is, to acknowledge his authority and your desire to invest in his kingdom. So he's going to receive, he'll be impressed, but he'll know this town has worked and prepared for me to visit. They respect and appreciate me. They're, they're trying to be reciprocal in this experience that we're having. So Friday, I drove by the area where the Gem and Mineral Show is kind of being set up, right? And I noticed these huge crews out there that were cleaning up trash and all the tumbleweeds. And I thought, whoa, wow, we don't do this the rest of the year, right? This is just all of a sudden now um, that this is happening. Why are we doing that? Because there will be visitors from all over the world coming to Tucson. And what do we want we, we want them to come and experience cleanliness. We want them to come and say, whoa, that place is well cared for. That was a pleasant visit. We want them to tell their friends. We want them to send other people here at other times of the year. We want to boost our tourism industry. We want them to sing the praises of Tucson, Arizona and say, hey, you might even want to live there. It's so nice. And so we prepare the way. We pick up the trash. We get rid of the tumbleweeds, right? We make it look as good as we can. And that's what he's talking about. That's what John the Baptist is calling people to do. He calls them to repent, which means to turn from things that they've been doing and change their ways. Now, it's been, a, it's been a while since I've defined repentance for you. I think this is a really important thing to say. So some, if you've been around Christian circles for a while, you may have heard this definition. If you're new, it's new for you. But to repent is to change directions. So, um, you know, the way we tend to look at it is about the action. So like, say I am a, you know, I'm a mean person who yells at my dog. And so here's the way I'm going. I'm being mean. I'm yelling at my dog, like, sit, you fool. And then, you know, I'm going to change my ways, right? And so I turn around and instead I'm going to be not mean and nice to the dog. Hey, buddy, sit. Oh, that's cool. Try again. Here's a treat. You know, like I changed my ways, but... Very few people are just going to change their ways. And this is core to the definition of repentance. You need to have a reason and, a, and an objective behind what you're doing. So if, if you're, you know, I'm, I'm, why am I mean to my dog? Because I'm overwhelmed. I'm controlling. I've got, I just have to have things my way. I'm stressed out. Like what I need is I need another like controlling principle in my life that tells me actually I can be at peace. I can be at rest. And so when you turn, if you simply turn toward like changing your behavior, it's not going to last. It's not going to stick. But if you turn toward another direction, another operating principle, it will help you actually make the changes that you need to make. It isn't just about your actions. It's about the motivation of your heart. What are you ultimately turning to? And that is going to change your actions. So the spiritual preparation is to turn your heart to God to open yourself up to who God is and what he's doing and who he says he is and how that could change things for you. It's to engage in some expectation and ask, what would it be like to know God? What would it be like to please him, to 
you know, now it's not just about changing your behavior so you won't be judged. It's about saying, how do I please him so that we can have a close relationship? Now, doesn't he already, doesn't he already know, you know, all these things? Like, why, if, if you want to have a close relationship, you know, why, why do you need to make the change? Doesn't it, doesn't it just all happen just because of the motive? And I, wanna, I want you to think about this emotionally because there is something to the, the actions that we couple with our motivations. What does it mean for you, you know, when you go to somebody's home and they've thoughtfully invited you to come over and prepared for you to come over? Doesn't that mean something to you? It means that they value the relationship. Now, on top of that, you probably aren't going to judge them for their ability to pull that off, right? It's going to be about their, their goal, their desire, but their actions do exhibit some of that. So if somebody invites you over and they bring out a Hungry Man TV dinner, but that's like all that they could do, and they put loving care and they slide it on over onto a plate and hand it to you, I would be honored by that. Because I would see that their, their goal is to love me and to care for me and to have me. I'm not, it's not their ability. It's the fact that their heart is in it and they're really trying to do something. Now on top, uh, to, on the flip side, you could have the most incredible home. You could have somebody over and you could have maid servants and you could have the biggest party in the world spend zero time talking to them. You might have all the ability, but the heart isn't there and it's not going to be a good experience. What we're doing um, in this call to prepare the way for the Lord, it's not about your ability. It's about the heart's desire that says, I want to I know you, God. I want to I see you. I'm, I'm going to prepare the way to the best of my ability. And that is a bold call. The bold call is to value the visit of God in your life even before it happens. It's not just like a Christmas idea or Christmas verse. It, this was this idea of preparing the way for the Lord that John the Baptist said was 700 years old when, when Jesus came. Um, then Mark is drawing it out 30 years later and he's applying it forward to people. This is a principle for all time that you can prepare your heart to encounter who God is in Jesus Christ. Mark, who wrote down Peter's biography of Jesus, you know, as ancient biographers did, was trying to say to the reader, I'm giving you this snippet to consider and to call you to action to go and do likewise. So why begin the sequence of stories this way? He's inviting us, us to open our hearts as the people who heard John the Baptist did to encountering Jesus, just like those people in his stories did. He's saying, I want you to consider what it would mean to open your heart, to prepare the way for the Lord. So when you read my stories your heart will be prepared. So he's inviting us to be open to Jesus being the son of God, to Jesus breaking our categories of what the son of God would be or would mean and would do, to Jesus being the hope of ancient people and modern people, to being the true son, to being the greater version of what we've put our trust in, whether it's our family, our church, our friend group, our nation, our influencers, or even ourselves the greater version of ourselves. If, if you think you're the only one you can trust, but you sort of know that you let yourself down, what would it look like to say, Jesus, would you stand in my place? And remember, Mark calls this gospel, um, this, he calls it gospel, he calls it good news, not to those who've already heard and believed, not just to those who've already heard and believed, but to anyone who will listen. 
And it goes even into the wilderness places where you don't expect that it will be understood. So the call is to open your heart, to anticipate an encounter with him, to anticipate getting a glimpse of who he is. And that would mean first to allow yourself to hear the words of imperfect people who are opening this story up to you. I mean, that's what I'm doing right now. That's what Micah and Isaiah, the prophets who were quoted once did. These were imperfect humans saying, hey, prepare the way for the Lord. That's what John the Baptist did out in the wilderness is he called people and he said, hey, prepare for the way for the Lord. Change your motivations. Turn toward God. That's what Mark and Peter were doing when they, when they put this together. They were saying, hey, we're about to tell you our stories about Jesus. Prepare the way. Open your hearts to him. That's what Mission Church, that's our whole aim is to kind of offer that to our community and say, hey, prepare your hearts. You might encounter Jesus. Like, come, listen, sit, give it a chance. Hear and hope that there is a God. He wants you to see him. He wants to visit you. He wants you to know him. And then out of that hope, prepare the way for him. And it's not your ability, it's your heart. That's all he wants. It's your desire to know him and be known. Just offer that in whatever way you can. If I were you, I'd be asking, so what what does that look like for me? This is all very abstract, right? And the trouble is, it is kind of abstract. Like, I, I can't layer onto you three steps to go out and prepare to encounter Jesus. I wish I could. I think what I can do is take like this gem show metaphor I gave you and just say, say this. So if you were to kind of make that a metaphor for your life and say, what are the tumbleweeds in the trash in my life that are the signs of neglect and even disregard for life that God has given to me? What are those in my life? What are the signs of neglect? What are the signs of disregard that I have in my life for God? And what would it look like for me to try to kind of work on those, to offer that when he visits me, I'm ready. What would that look like? And then to expect that he wants to come, that he wants to know you. Just think about that for a moment. What would honor God to see you investing in and working on, showing that you want to know him more? And look, you can't can't fix your life. Even in ancient Rome, um, the subject of these towns, you know, who are trying to smooth out their streets, they didn't create the roads. They don't have the power to fix the roads. They're, these are just citizens of these little towns. The, the king was the one who gave them the road in the first place, who maintained it. They're just called to exhibit their, their gratitude and care by investing in what he has already giving them, given them by honoring him as their king. The same is true of faith. You can't conjure up your faith. You can't even create it yourself. But just to show, like, I, I want to invest in it. I want to care for what's been given to me. But by the fact that you're even here listening to my words, something's going on in your heart. You're, there's a curiosity in you. Invest in it. Just invest in it. Do you sense a glimmer of faith in yourself? Do you wonder if there's a God? Do you want to be more of a godly person? Do you want to experience more of knowing who God is, more of his peace that surpasses understanding? Those are good signs. Invest in it. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Open your heart. 
and life to the possibility that God could reveal himself to you in deeper ways. So Peter, um, Mark's mentor, had, had experienced this. He had once opened his heart to Jesus without a lot of information. You got to remember his story. Um, he was fishing with his brother at the Sea of Galilee, and this man walks up to him who he's never met before. Maybe he's heard of him. And he says, follow me. And he took a risk. And he opened his heart. And he saw him do incredible things, the kind of things that they reported to John the Baptist. Not the things they expected, but incredible nonetheless. And when Jesus didn't come as the king he expected, when Jesus' kingdom came through Jesus being arrested, tried, convicted, and killed instead of solving their problems in their lifetime, um, he, he witnessed that. And he probably felt some letdown. We, we know he did. He denied Jesus, right, at his trial. But he also came to believe that Jesus was doing something bigger than he'd realized, and this was only the beginning. Um, when Jesus rose from the dead, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah's words came, to true, came true in even deeper ways. Remember, the prophet Isaiah had said the mountains would be brought low and the valleys would be raised up. It's as if creation was bowing before this king. You know, it was, it was hyperbole, right? Like, you, when you're smoothing out a road, you're just moving a little rock and adding a little mud. You know, it's this, this idea of like the mountains are coming down and the valleys are rising. This is like creation bowing before this king. And Peter, I believe, started to look at the resurrection and go, I think creation just bowed before this king. It bowed itself in submission. Death itself couldn't hold him. And before he had opened his heart, even to that extra layer of possibility, Jesus sat at the Passover table with Peter and the disciples and maybe even the young John Mark, you know, running around the house, goofing off, stealing snacks off the table. And that was the night that uh, Jesus would be betrayed. That's the night the whole thing felt like it was unraveling. That's the night all the disciples felt like John the Baptist and said, were you really the one? Or was there somebody else because you just got arrested and it's not looking good, right? That night, Jesus took the bread and breaking it proclaimed, this is my body broken for you. And they would have wondered what that meant, right? And he would have taken the wine from the table and said, this is my blood of a new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Because while Jesus was not the the leader they expected, he was doing something more profoundly powerful. He would lead as a suffering servant, laying his life down in our place. He was becoming the new and better Israel, right? He was becoming a new and better king who does things a different way by laying down his life for his friends. And this call to this table is, is a call to receive him. Our prayer time is a call to make the path straight. Um, and then, as with the whole Gospel of Mark, as we leave the table, the, the thing to consider is what would it look like to begin walking in Jesus' ways, to go and do likewise, to be like Peter and take the risk and say, I'll open my heart. I'll follow after you. So I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, and there's going to be two minutes of silence after that. That's just time, time for you to open your hearts, to pray, to... Uh, to confess before God. Maybe there's a, a repentance that needs to happen. Maybe as you were hearing that, you thought maybe there are some motivations that are kind of off uh, in my own heart and soul. Uh, maybe it's just to, an opportunity to say, God, I want to know who you are. I don't know how to do this. He, he receives all of this. Um, 
he, he receives it with open arms. He's so willing to help. Um, if, you, if you feel like you're not good enough, uh, God actually calls us to come and confess our sins before him. And it says he's faithful and just in the Bible. He's faithful and just to forgive, forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You know, when you go to somebody and you tell them you've failed them, um, you know, usually that goes pretty well, not always. God's actually the safest place. He is already committed to forgiving you. He's the safest place to go with your brokenness. So there's going to be that two minutes of silence for you just to, um, to stand before him and, and say or pray whatever you need to. Um, after that, we're going to do three more things that uh, the church has always done throughout the ages. Number one, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. You'll notice that after that time of silence, Jason will get up and play music, and some people will begin to stand and come forward, and I'll, I'll uh, you know, remind you of Jesus's body uh, broken for you and bloodshed for you. You're welcome to that. Uh, there's no prerequisite other than believing that Jesus is who he says he is. Um, and, and honestly, your faith in that, Jesus even said, only you just need a little bit. Um, you don't have to have this perfect, strong faith. Don't wait for the day you're sure about everything, but make sure that your faith is placed in Jesus and who he is and what he has done. Um, and then you can receive that with us. Um, we always uh, sing together. So Jason's going to come up here and lead us in songs. And those songs are meant to take these ideas and these truths and sink them down deeper into our souls that we would begin to just memorize them and believe them. And then we give together. And this is really one of those things that is kind of acknowledging Jesus as king over all areas of our life. And so we hope that, that attending worship, um, your, the way that you like live your faith out in your workplace and all of these things is of a similar mindset that you say, Jesus, everything I have um, is from you and I want to give back to you out of those things. Um, so as we enter into this time, I'm going to pray uh, over us and then I'll leave two minutes of silence for you. And uh, I just encourage you, open your hearts to Jesus. Father, thank you for the chance to be here with these people who you love. Um, we are just wanting to open our hearts to you as we enter into this year of considering the ways that you encounter us, the ways that you've encountered us in Jesus. Um, even though it happened, it seems so long ago, we want to open our hearts to this. We want to be receptive to this. And we want to, we want to know you in meaningful ways now. We want to see how how your spirit could guide us through the things that we face in this life, um, the friendships that we have, the relationships we have, the work we have to do. We want to know that you're with us. We really, really do. And we ask you that you would reveal yourself to us. God, as we uh, enter into these kind of motions of Christian worship, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive you, your body broken for us, your blood shed for us, that we would be receptive to our need for that, for a new and better version of ourselves, um, that you, Jesus, would be in that place where we say, you have done what we cannot, you have offered what we've never been able to find, and that we would trust you, that we would see your grace and your mercy, that in sacrificing your life in our place, that you actually have loved us deeply and have borne um, the responsibility that we couldn't bear and I pray that then we would turn ourselves to you and actually change the way we live out of gratitude to you. I pray that as we give, that we would give out of an abundance because we see how you've provided for us. I pray specifically that you would provide for the needs of everyone in this church, whether that's through their work, 
um, through a program that they're enrolled in, that you would take care of them, that you would give them everything that they need, that they would have the food that they need and the shelter that they need and the funds that they need to care for one another and their own bodies and lives. And I pray that you would do that and encourage us and even show us how we see your goodness in those very basic things in this life. So now, God, I pray that as we lay our hearts before you and sit silent before you, that you would guide us and care for our souls. In Jesus' name.